2020 got you down? Does it seem like everything is anarchy and the center cannot hold? Well, at Granny Smith's Apple Pies and Kaiser Pharmaceuticals, we've heard you loud and clear. That's why we've partnered to bring you Granny Smith's Apple Pie-flavored antidepressants. Granny Smith's Apple Pie-flavored antidepressants combine the great taste of all-American apple pie and the mind-numbing chemicals of Kaiser's antidepressants. Granny Smith's antidepressants come in a variety of fun shapes like apples, apple pies, straight jackets, and little American flags for all you browbeaten patriots out there. They're chewable and delicious and provide a full-day supply of vitamin C. So remember, when you're feeling down and hopeless, Granny Smith's Apple Pie-flavored antidepressants. Side effects include incessant crying, nausea, and a craving for ice cream. Ask your doctor if Granny Smith's antidepressants are for you. Warning. The Long in the Boot podcast contains sarcasm, irony, logic, and occasional facts. Opinions expressed by guests of Long in the Boot are those of the individual and do not reflect the opinions of any corporate or government entity. Due to the use of freedom of expression and those other pesky God-given rights, adult supervision is recommended. Please listen thoughtfully. Welcome to the Long in the Boot podcast. It's a podcast I hope will inform, entertain, and perhaps even get a few people riled up from time to time, maybe even make some people mad, maybe even unfriend me, who knows. My website, which is still under construction somewhat, is www.longintheboot.com. My email is longintheboot at gmail.com. If you have any show topics, news clips, or ideas that you think are interesting, send them my way. Keep the clip short, though. Think under 30 seconds. Or better yet, just send me a link to the clip. If I use your idea or your topic, I will credit you on the show, of course. I am your host, Glenn Long, and this is my first Long in the Boot podcast. And I'm coming to you from a very small town in the heel of the boot of southwest Louisiana. Now, if you're wondering about the boot reference, you're clearly not from the Bayou State, or you didn't pay attention in geography class. Either way, welcome to the show. Now, I'd like to go ahead and start off by giving you, giving you a bit of a personal background before I hit on today's topic. I feel like it helps to know a bit about the person that's speaking to you. So, my name is Glenn Long. I'm a 57-year-old white male, and according to what I'm hearing on the media these days, since I'm over 50, a white male, I'm supposed to be a racist, misogynistic, homophobic, right-wing Republican Trump supporter. I'm none of those things. I would like to think that I'm a man who forms his own thoughts and opinions, as well as someone who treats everyone with the decency and respect they deserve. But who knows? You can form your own opinion, and you are still allowed to have opinions. You can think what you like. Now, I came to Lake Charles, Louisiana in 1982 from the Show Me State, a small town near Kansas City by the name of Blue Springs, Missouri. And I'm here to tell you, when I came to Louisiana, it was a complete and utter shock For me, I I grew up in the suburbs. What did I know about the South? The only thing I knew about Louisiana was from one movie I saw called Southern Comfort, and we'll get into that some other time. It's well worth talking about. Anyway, Lake Charles was an incredibly small town in the 1980s. If you didn't see Lake Charles in the 1980s and you only have come to Lake Charles in the last few years, you have no idea how small it actually was. There weren't a lot of jobs available, 
when I got here. So I started working in restaurants. And in restaurants, I met my lovely wife of 33 years, Deborah, and have done a surprisingly number of different, surprisingly number? I have done a surprising number of different jobs since. I've worked in restaurants. I've worked in convenience stores. I was a bartender. Uh, my wife and I owned a bar, and we also owned a daycare center in Lake Charles. And I'm here to tell you that running a bar and dealing with drunk adults and running a daycare center and dealing with small children, it's virtually the same thing. The only difference really for the, is the clientele is different sizes. Uh, I worked in sales. I was a photographer. I worked in television production. I, wor I worked as a radio DJ, a news reporter, radio talk show host, and I did uh, radio commercial production at several of the places I worked. And those are a few of the jobs I've had. My wife and I even managed to have a couple kids in the middle of all those jobs. But the one job that I haven't mentioned, but that I did and I continue to do because of the sheer love of the subject and my students, is history teacher. And that kind of brings us up to speed on me. I am the last person in the world to get a podcast. They handed out numbers at the beginning of all this, and I had the very last number. Try as I might, no one would trade numbers with me, and everybody on the planet now has a podcast, but I have finally caught up. I got a podcast. And anyway, that's not really what I came here to talk to you about. What are I, you doing now, I, Glenn? I, uh, Who are you talking to? I can hear you down the hall. Um, I'm talking to these people. Um, you have people? Yeah, they're all over. Um, okay. Um, uh, why, why are you in my studio? Well, again, I could hear you because it's a small house and I, well, the puppy is napping. So I kind of need you to keep your voice down a little bit. Yeah, puppy. I told you I wanted a tiger. Yeah, well, you got money. a stimulus podcast. Uh, we got a quarantine puppy. So, you know. But I wanted a tiger. Yeah, well, I thought a tiger might be more work, but apparently this puppy is kind of high maintenance. Well, I checked into it, and, and I couldn't have gotten a tiger anyway. Something happened over the course of the quarantine, and tigers were really hard to come by. Yeah, I, I think I heard a little something I, I about that. I really wanted a quarantine Actually, tiger. I heard a lot of strange things. Tigers, uh, murder hornets, um, dust storms. Speaking of <clears throat> yeah. that, um, <laughs> you might notice a little bit of a dust, I don't know, dust Flem? Yeah, maybe. Ugh. Anyway, um, well, I guess since since I've been invaded in my in my inner sanctum, uh, the person you're hearing is my lovely wife Debbie, who uh, who I've known for well a little more than 33 years. Been married for 33 years. She is the uh, other half of this household, and the one who really technically truly uh, prevented me from getting a wonderful tiger. Oh. Well, Deb, since you're since you're here, real quick, a little bit about you. What what do you do for a living? What do I do? Oh, currently I am a English teacher. I'm an English teacher, rather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to watch that, don't you? You do. Yes. General conversation. I don't think you have to be so specific, but you know. Uh, well, how'd you come to teaching? Uh, we had two kids, and it seemed like we needed to grow up and do something. You know. Uh, fruitful with our lives, something that had purpose and meaning. Well, lots of things had meaning. I, I, I thought when I did radio, it had meaning. I, I don't know. Yeah, I know you enjoyed it. It's always been your, your goal to be back on the air. Well, here, see, quarantine did have some positive aspects to it. I suppose so. I, I've, I've always wanted to stay. I, I wanted to stay in radio. The problem was the technology was moving on, and radio 
personalities, I guess, or people who worked in radio were becoming rarer in the obsolete. industry. Well, obs- I don't, I don't um, want to feel like I'm obsolete. That's that goes back to being an over fifty white male kind of thing. Mm. Apparently, we're obsolete. <laughs> um, but anyway, I uh, I couldn't stay in radio mainly because I simply couldn't make a living doing it and stay in one place. It wasn't yeah. stable for and my have family. benefits. Job benefits are key sure. these days. And, and as a teacher, you do get some really fine benefits when school is in session. Uh, but of course, there's no question that that 2020. Yeah. has been, so far, a pretty weird, horrible, awful year. It has been uh, very disturbing, the trends that we are seeing currently um, in 2020. It, they've been coming, but now I think they're really kind of coming to a climax. We're reaching that point. And they certainly have caused a lot of people to get very, very angry. Yes, yes. And and, like, and we're hearing it because of technology. Speaking of which, where's your mask? Mm. <laughs> they're they're in the mail. They're coming. My designer masks are coming. Oh, they're going to be wonderful. Yes, they're going to be. Wait. I'm going to be lovely. Designer masks. Yes, you know that. Oh yes, <laughs> it'll be great. So back to what it is. What what are you trying to do with these people? I mean, you don't get to be in front of a class teaching, and I know that's your goal. But it almost sounded like you were lecturing back here, and and I was missing some of uh, some of your wit and charm that I'm used to when you discuss things. Well, it's a little easier to discuss things when you've got a room full of people actually staring at you, uh, hoping that you'll either screw up, embarrass yourself, or otherwise do something silly. Oh, well, yeah. And and being a history teacher, actually, being a history teacher does give you an advantage of all the other disciplines of education in that history doesn't ever stop happening, and it doesn't stop evolving, and it doesn't stop changing. You know, if you're a math teacher, look, and more power to math teachers, I don't get it. But once you've learned how to do a quadratic equation, it's never going to change. The numbers in it might change, but the but the formula doesn't change. It no stays subjective the same. side is very objective. Being a history teacher allows you, the one, the freedom to directly engage with students and to try to get opinions and ideas, something that education really would like to weed out. We don't like kids that think for themselves, it seems like, anymore. But uh that's the only reason to do history is you want kids to be objective and and look at history and perhaps see things in a different way. I know that being a history teacher means you never stop learning, and that's the beauty of it. I love history for that very thing, that history is not static. It's not something that's just frozen in place. The, the basic facts of history are the same always, but our interpretation of history can change and evolve over time, and sometimes that really lends itself to well, teaching a class. So you're I'm, saying it's both objective and subjective. It is. Absolutely. And those things overlap all the time. All the time. And you can make people really angry when you attack their core beliefs. The thing is, there's opinions, and often beliefs are based on opinions. And then there's facts, the things that actually happened. And it's it's really hard. It's a blurry area. They do overlap. And they, so what do you want your people? And I call them your people because that's what I call my class. My class, they are my people when they come to me each day. So what do you want your people out there to think about? What perspective are you trying to present? Because there are a lot of perspectives out there going on right now. And, and well, it seems like nobody can agree on anything, and I don't know that you can change somebody's mind, but maybe you can have them think about something in a different way. Right, and and that's sort of what I kind of hope to do with the podcast is not teach it like a class or not do it like a class, obviously, because there's a lot of people that might listen that are actually adults and have 
solidified their opinions, perhaps. But I don't know. I'm I'm willing to learn new things, and I'm willing certainly to change my views of things as more information becomes available and as as I learn more, and actually try to put myself in 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 positions where I. I th- look, try to look at it from the point of view of history itself, that that sometimes these things in history that we look at, we judge them or we we try to place them in our own window where we judge or, or evaluate them based solely on today's standards. And I just don't think that's possible with history. You have to be willing to at least see the other side of any issue. And often that requires that you evaluate your own thoughts and beliefs and opinions and perhaps even possibly modify them as time goes by. So here you are in the boot. Obviously, you must have loved Louisiana for, you know, more than just me. Um, you stayed well, here. Well, I did. I, I First of all, let's face it. I mean, of all the things that kept me in Louisiana, there's no doubt that it was the food. And, oh, and, and, <laughs> you are in trouble, <laughs> sir. And uh, and and luckily, though, I can I can actually prepare the food. Yes, now. yes. And and some people certainly take advantage of that. Shut up! It's and, a requirement. And, My man has to has to be able to prepare food for me. And otherwise, and, I would starve. And I'm certainly not starving. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not starving either. And and it's it's absolutely clear when I start looking for pants that have more than one X behind oh, the number. Yes. So we have quarantine clothes, quarantine podcast, quarantine puppy, and quarantine clothes. Yeah, it's 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 well, and quarantine clothes for sure. Um, okay, so so oh, back to, yeah, back, back to I'm um, well. What's well, your what is your focus today? I know. Well, you I started to... I started and actually recorded an entire podcast about censorship. Mm. Kind of, kind of dry. I it's suppose a weighty subject. It is a weighty subject, and one of the disadvantages of doing a podcast is I don't have people in front of me asking questions that I can redirect back at them as well questions, which is often how I teach. The Socratic method. Any of uh, any of my former students know that I will rarely give them a straight answer on a question that might have gray areas as opposed to black and white. If it's a yes no question. Sure. Well, there's no thinking there, really. Right. But if it's an opinion question, a lot of times I just turn their question around on them and ask that question back at them with a little bit of extra information, say, what do you think about this? Okay, well, what's going on in Louisiana in in the sense of, you said censorship was your topic, but is that really your topic? I suppose not. it still is in a way. Well, what started it? What what did you read or, or view that made you want to discuss something? Well, I, I wanted to talk about censorship in regards to this battle right now over um, statues and place names of primarily Southern generals and Southern statesmen. Is that local or state level or both? Well, it, it started across the – It's my view of this started because of the number of statues. That was one of the things I learned. I assumed – like when I came to Lake Charles, I saw the statue down by the courthouse. I never really thought about it. It didn't affect me. I didn't really consider it. I just walked by it. And we'll get to that in a second. But I didn't realize that in states across the nation – um, there are th- more than a thousand of these statues. These um, places are they're, they're placed in places of honor. So I started researching stuff, and then I came across a story that popped up. It was beginning of, or it was last week, and it was about the LSU library. Mm, yes, and it it started because I started researching why the LSU 
board, along with Governor Edwards, decided to remove the name of Troy Middleton from the library at LSU and anything else that was named after him yeah, at LSU. Yeah, probably a costly matter, too. Well, and I'm sure it is. And it, it, it a lot of people seem to be happy about it, at least that I saw on the media or in the media. But I also wanted to know more about Troy Middleton. And I, that's one of the things that surprised me. Troy Middleton is a very complex individual. He's not just some, you know, figure from history. It's first of all, he's close enough to our own history that there's plenty of information on him. And number one, he was a general, not just a general. He was a veteran of World War One and World War Two, decorated. He participated in World War One in a major battle. In World War Two, he participated in, in and defended Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge. And and Bastogne and the Battle of the Bulge, there can be no question that that broke the back of Hitler's army. Now that that's worthy of praise. There's no question about it. I, I don't. But think is it worthy of a library? Well, that's not why he got the library. Um, he got the library because he fought the legislature of Louisiana at the time to get a modern library. It might surprise you to know that LSU didn't really have a really fine modern library at the time he was fighting for this in the middle of the uh, 20th century. But he was president of LSU by that point, and he fought tooth and nail to get the funds to build a state-of-the-art library. And I, by state-of-the-art, I mean at his time, of course, it, but it's still state-of-the-art. If you go to that library today, it's pretty amazing. But he, he fought a battle there, and he won. But recently, a letter came up, and that's kind of where we're going to go. But before we go there, I do want to talk also about something else that happened almost almost at the same time, and it dealt with the statue in Lake Charles. The We'll get back to Josh Middleton. Okay, yeah. But that led me from Josh Middleton to Calcasieu Parish and the recent battle over the statue at the courthouse. And, and I know this can be divisive for a lot of people, um, so... If I if you feel that I've insulted you or your ancestors in some way, please, it's not my intention. But you can send an email. <laughs> yeah, you can. I gave you the address at the beginning of all this. <laughs> the the statue at the civil uh, at, at excuse me the statue at the courthouse uh, is uh, the South's defenders. That's what it's titled, and it was placed there on the fiftieth around the fiftieth anniversary of the end of the Civil War. And there's a a lot of a lot of debate about that right now, and I think the debate's been a long time coming. It almost kind of sort of happened back in the '90s, but anyway, that statue right now is well, for want of a better term, it's under attack by people that want it removed from the courthouse. And I use the word attack loosely. It's a discussion, and I think that's what it needs to be. I think it needs to be an honest discussion over what that statue represents for everyone. And I think that's the key. We tend to not include the people that we should when we start talking about this statue. I've looked at uh, the writings of people who support leaving the statue right where it is. They've talked about that it will disturb the the ambiance of the front of the courthouse. Aesthetics? We're going to keep it for aesthetics? <laughs> aesthetics. We're going to keep it for aesthetics. But it is public grounds. It is. Everyone, and it's the courthouse. It's a symbol of justice. It should be a symbol of justice, not for for not one group, but all groups. And our symbol of 
justices the scales, and they should and be equal. Supporters of the statue say, look, they didn't put that statue there to try to subjugate African-Americans. And that may well be true. I don't know what was in the heads intent. of the people who put that statue there. Their intent may have been very well what they what the supporters say today, which was to celebrate in the memory of the people who fought for the Confederacy and protected their families and their homes from northern invaders. But one of the questions I have when I read that and when I talk about that is, when the statue was placed, what was life like for the people who were living? A lot of the people who dedicated that statue are names that are still synonymous with Lake Charles. Oh, yeah. There's no question. I'm not going to go through the names because— Just, just the just old families. Drive this, around Lake yeah. Charles and look at the street signs. It's them. Mm-hmm. It's those people. It's those people. Anyway, the question I had, though, when I looked at a picture of the dedication was, as I was looking at the picture, and it's kind of fuzzy, but you can blow it up and look at it, is I noticed that there's one group that seems conspicuously absent, and it's African-Americans. They're they're there. There there are a few. I see them, but there's not very many. And at the time the statue was dedicated to this idea, we also were living with Jim Crow. Jim Crow was in full effect, and there's no question if you study history that Jim Crow was devastating to the black community, the black community of the South, and in many cases the black community of the North. It's not like separated. Public facilities were only in the South. They were everywhere. They they existed in places as far north as New York. But the idea of separating people is kind of where I'm going with this. This idea that we're going to just ignore a segment of the the population when we talk about this statue. And I don't think it's fair. Yeah, I saw. Uh, I saw. Was it Judge Ware? Is that who it was on on? It, it was. It was a local ju- television show. That judge was, Ware. Uh, he's a district court judge. Was bringing his point of view to the to the table, and I I felt that he had a really valid point uh, of how he feels walking into that symbol of justice uh, as a man of color, and and the effect that that has on him. Right, and I don't think we can disregard his. I don't think it's fair to all dis- people of color. I don't think I don't think it's fair to disregard that at all. We we Judge Ware, uh, if you didn't read his his writings, talked about the fact that this is a public place, as you said, for equal justice under the law, and that symbol that's standing out in front of the courthouse doesn't represent that. No, it's a reminder of a time when equal justice wasn't available. In fact, at the time that statue was dedicated, African-Americans likely couldn't have even used a water fountain or a bathroom in the courthouse unless it was designated for their use only. True. We were just out of Plessy versus Ferguson. Black people could not ride in railroad cars that white people were allowed to be in. In Lake Charles, if you rented an apartment to a black person or a black family, and there were white people in that apartment building, you could be cited and actually cited for a misdemeanor. Oh, wow. And this is at the same time that this statue was dedicated. But we don't, when you read the words of the people who dedicated the statue, that's not really mentioned. No. And it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, a disconnect. When they talk about, you know, Southern heritage, well, doesn't that include African Americans? They were here, they were a big part of our. They they absolutely Culture were, and they still are. And in fact, they that's part of the deal that we should be all working together. We're supposed to be Americans. Um, the the statue 
in Lake Charles, as well as statues across the country, are coming under attack. And what I hear most often, and as a history teacher, this is where I kind of have to step in. I keep hearing, well, they're trying to change history. And I don't think that removing a statue from a public place is going to change history. History already happened. It's We can look at it and look at it from different points of view, but the facts are that stuff happened. Uh, the statue, I don't think, should be destroyed. A lot of people are calling for these statues to Civil War and Confederate generals and statesmen to be destroyed, to be absolutely destroyed, and to have their names stricken from every possible place you might see them due to their views during the Civil War. Well, I like Nick Hunter, the mayor in Lake Charles, recently. He said, you know, I don't exactly know where it should go, but it just doesn't belong in front of our institutions. It, it, it should be put in a context. It should be put in maybe a museum or some other place where people can learn from the past, but not stricken from all history books, but certainly put somewhere that can be learned from. Right. And I, and, I, and I think that we should at least be honest enough to look at it from, from the point of view of people who were second-class citizens at the time that the one in Lake Charles was dedicated. It causes pain. It ca- Whether you believe it or not, I'm going to take people at their word. If they say that something is a painful reminder of a very painful past, who am I to say that they're somehow just making it up? I don't think that's true. No. no more than do I think that every single person who was there in 1915 when they dedicated that statue, in the back of their mind, were, were they saying, ha-ha, this will show African-Americans their place and, in society? Yeah, I don't, I don't think, think they were either. thinking about no. that. But they also lived in 1915. So at the same time, I don't know where that statue should go. I think museums are the place where most of these statues should go. I think that public facilities, courthouses— streets, um, schools, those names are going to cause pain for people. And rather than worry about upsetting people because of their pride in Southern heritage, I'm willing to go the other way and say, what about the pain? You know, why do we want to perpetuate this idea of pain? And Well, certainly not government-sponsored. It's, it's kind of a prevailing idea that if you put it out there and the government is telling you that these are the people we should honor, or these are the people we should uh, remember f- fondly, I, I guess, enough to create a statue for them, that the government is sanctioning that opinion or that idea, and they don't need to be doing that. Right, and we're and we're seeing we're seeing change. It is oh, happening. Oh yes, absolutely. Mississippi will change their flag to get rid of the Confederate flag that's on their state sure. flag. But my neighbor can fly it across the street. I think he can. Absolutely. I don't look. If you want to fly a Confederate flag or put a Confederate statue on your private property, I don't believe that anybody should have anything to say about it. They can say it, but they shouldn't be able to take action because of it. I don't think, as some people are calling for, an outright ban on the Confederate flag. Well, that's that's nonsense. It is your right to fly that flag, just as it's my right to not. <laughs> um, so when you talk about change, and you re- we, we can both agree, and I, I, think, I think most of Americans would say, yes, we have been seeing change. Change can be messy. Change can be painful. Um, and now I think that idea of the letter 
that Middleton wrote that got him in such trouble? Before, before we do that, let me do this. I want to talk real quick. If you think that the statue idea is, or the ideas that, are, that I'm talking about with the statue, if you think that uh, that's over, that there aren't any more conflicts over statues of people in Tennessee right now, um, there's a battle going on because of an action that the Tennessee governor took last year. Uh, he p- placed a bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest in the Capitol. Now, this isn't something that was done during Jim Crow. This was done within the last two years. And Nathan Bedford Forrest, while he was a Confederate general, he's also responsible for the Fort Pillow massacre, where he literally executed dozens of black Union soldiers because they were wearing the Union uniform. Oh, He also helped found and was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, a regular party guy. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who actually idolize him even today. And I know that's crazy, but it, it it's true. And you're not going to get rid of the ideas or the opinions of people who think he was a No, that perspective is out there, too. You're not going to get rid of that. No. The idea that the governor would place that bust in the Capitol and also create Nathan Bedford Forest Day Oh wow! in Tennessee. Is it a holiday there? It's some kind of holiday. I don't know who celebrates I, I it. I was going to say, how do they celebrate that? I wonder. I would imagine people dress up in Confederate uniforms and play Dixie. I, I don't know, uh, and I don't care to know. It's it's not. It really doesn't affect me, but I can imagine that it affects. I can imagine African Americans who live in Tennessee, at least in their view of the governor and the government of Tennessee. Yeah, but Tennessee is a whole nother country. <laughs> so. <laughs> Anyway, um, well, Louisiana and, has its own painful KKK. And past. if you're from Tennessee and you think I'm insulting Tennessee, I am. Um, uh, long in the boot at gmail.com. <laughs> Send your emails. <laughs> Send your emails. But uh, okay, so back to back to what I started this whole thing with, which was General Middleton, because there is something that we have to consider when we start looking at people, especially people. Closer to our own time. Yeah. As you said, he's complex. People are complex. People are complex. And a letter was dug up not too long ago that he wrote to the chancellor of the University of Texas, where he explained and described how integration was happening at LSU. LSU had admitted black students about seven years earlier. Prior to that, they weren't allowed on campus. Um, they still, at this time that Middleton wrote the letter, were not allowed to participate in athletics and were not allowed to room with white students. So it was integration, but mm, not complete integration. Yeah. They were still being segregated from college life, yes. I guess you could say. And in the letter, and I've read the letter, and I could read it now, but I'm not going to. You want to read it, just type, type it. in Middleton's LSU letter and you can read it for yourself. There are parts of that letter that are without question, by today's standards, racist. In fact, describing the fact that you're keeping people from participating in athletics because of their skin color. Because of their skin color is racist. There can be no question. But and this, he had power over them. And he did have power over them as the LSU president. So that is racism that's by more, that, definition. Yeah, that's more than prejudice. I think today we're trying to make prejudice and racism uh, synonymous. And I think there's a subtle difference there. That Well, as of right now, but I will tell you, and this is going to be hard to believe, but Merriam-Webster is actually going to change the definition of racism Many to take out the power reference. 
that what they're going to do is basically make racism the same definition, at least one of the definitions of racism, yeah. will be the same as prejudice, prejudice. Yeah. or bigotry. Okay. So, so we need to be clear that in discussion that the definition has changed and that definitions change. Yes, they do. Certainly over time, just, just like, like people and history and, and, you know, just the way it is. And because human beings are flawed, I think. So Middleton, Middleton's letter, when we read it, we go, okay. And if it stopped there, I don't think people would have too much trouble with removing his name from the LSU library. But it doesn't stop there. I think that you need to keep going. What did Middleton do? How did Middleton, you know, follow up his tenure as the LSU president? Well, it turns out, as I was doing some research on Middleton, that Governor McKithen, around 1970, put together a commission, a panel, to deal with continuing problems with integration at LSU. Now, remember, we're talking about 1970. Yeah, that's really not that long ago. It's not that long ago, but it's also not that long after full civil rights were granted, yeah. where finally we we admitted to ourselves that, yeah, America had kind of been racist for a while. And there were still problems. There were lots of problems at LSU, as well as other colleges. We just weren't that far removed from the troubles of the 1960s. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. had only been dead for a couple of years at this point. And so they put this commission together, and it was chaired by a a group of mostly scholars and professors, but it was, or it was peopled by professors and teachers and half black, half white. The chairman of this commission was General Middleton. McKithen asked him personally to do it. And he had a co-chair, and his name was Albert Dent. And he was the president of Dillard University. He was a doctor? Dr. Albert Dent, yes. You read his history. He was a Louisiana civil rights leader. And when you read some of his accomplishments, they're pretty impressive. There's no question. So he absolutely was a good man to pick to be on this commission as well. Middleton, if you'd stopped with the story of him writing that letter, you might think, well, why would he be on that commission? Well, it's because he had evolved. He had changed. And Dr. Albert Dent, when asked about Middleton's uh, racial views, I I thought it was interesting. And I'm going to go ahead and – sorry about the paper noises. Uh, I want to go ahead and read – Shows you're prepared. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it shows I'm prepared. I guess so. Um, Dr. Albert Dent was asked about Middleton's racial views and Middleton, or excuse me, Dr. Albert Dent said, quote, if ever a man changed, that man was Troy Middleton. Now, this is coming from a African-American doctor who knew him, who spoke to him, who worked with him for quite some time on this commission. In fact, Middleton stayed on this commission even after he had said he was going to quit and retire. Let's face it, he was old by then. He was a veteran of World War One. Yeah. He wasn't a young man, but he felt the work was important enough to be involved. And Dr. Albert Dent, who I have no doubt would would say he was still racist if he had been. Instead, yeah, why would he lie about it? Why would he lie? And instead says, this man changed. And that's one of those things that I'm finding more and more as I read about all of the strife going on right now with protests and, and racism. Does racism exist? Yes. Prejudice, bias, Does prejudice bigotry. and bias and bigotry exist? Is there an advantage in society if you are white versus black? 
There absolutely is. There is an advantage. That's kind of what white privilege is about. It's that I don't have to think about that one aspect of myself when dealing with getting a job or trying to succeed or to try to acquire wealth. It's just not part of the thing for me because I was born white. Through no fault of my own, by the way, I had nothing to do with it, as I'm sure most of you had nothing to do with your own birth. Um, But anyway, the word that really stuck out as I was reading this is the word redemption. If we just say, look, 10 years ago, you said something that was racist. Or you put blackface on at Halloween. Or or somebody put blackface on 10 years ago, and then we're going to make sure they don't ever work again. There was a racist tweet you made. Right. If we just do that and we never allow for a person to be redeemed, to to evolve, then what are we saying about our society? That it's just locked in time? It's just locked in stone? A person can't become better? Well, I would offer that the United States as a nation is still the very best place in the world to live. A lot of people might disagree these days. That's fine. Disagree. But no country offers the chance to, well, to be redeemed, to change the direction of your life. Lord knows I've changed the direction of my life numerous times. I have seen students who had troubled pasts, who today have wonderful families and wonderful relationships and are raising good, solid kids. They're just good people. They're good citizens. They're good people. And I don't think it's right that we judge somebody's past behavior uh, solely solely when we make an evaluation. We have to at least offer the chance of redemption. I don't think that removing Troy Middleton's name from the LSU library is actually fair. I think he would be the first one to say, man, I really wished I hadn't said that. I was wrong. And by removing his name, we're sort of deleting him from history. It's almost as if we're trying to make history what we want it to be. But history is not a set of ideas that we use to make the future the way we want it to be. And that's really what I see over and over again. I see people trying to remove the features of history that offend them. And the problem is you don't have that right. You don't have the right to not be offended. I mean, you can be personally offended, but you don't have the right to act on it, certainly. You know, when you see somebody wearing a MAGA hat, you're not allowed to go up and scream in their face. It's verbal assault. If you don't like the hat, get a better hat. I don't know. Wear something else. Or better yet, ignore it. Well, don't hate that person because they have a different view than you. No. There's no reason for that. And there's certainly no reason to act on it. I think that a a lot of racism today, and I do believe this, is still based on fear of the unknown. You know, what does the future hold? Well, here's a here's a quick heads up for anybody who's ever thought about this. We don't know. It's unwritten. You know, it's a blank slate. And the decisions that we make today will certainly make the future what it is. So maybe we just need to make better decisions today, and then we can have the future that we'd like to see. But certainly removing things from history that offend us and just not talking about them is the, is, is a form of censorship, which is kind of where I started this whole thing. And history's going to be fine, okay? Everybody out there who's worried about the statues coming down, uh, no matter what the statues represent, be they Columbus or whoever, history's going to be fine. History, history never really suffers too much. 
we're not going, history is not something that can be manipulated quite that easily. When we teach history, it doesn't stay the same. It hasn't stayed the same since I started teaching history more than 20 years ago. We've learned new things. We know more every day about stuff that happened in the past. But before I wrap it up, I'm going to thank everybody for listening. Where's this all going to go? I don't even know. I have no idea. Now, if you know where all this is going, I would like to please get you to send me some emails and tell me where you think it's all going. I'll be more than happy to read them. Again, my email address is longintheboot at gmail.com. I would also like to thank my, uh, well, my guest host, I guess. I guess. Well, at least you uh, were not lecturing as much. Well, I tried not to, but when I don't lecture, I say um a lot more. Anyway, all right, let's wrap it up. History's fine, folks. I think that's what we've learned as today. As long as we discuss, yes. But well, we got to discuss it, and we got to keep keep talking about it. Yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And also, be willing to put yourself in another person's place and maybe see things a little differently. History will survive. And to wrap it up, I've got a quote from uh, my favorite author, a guy by the name of Sir Terry Pratchett. If you haven't read them, you need to. If you haven't read the Discworld series, you really need to, because I think he had a better handle on human behavior and history than almost anybody walking the planet today. And this is what he had to say about history when he was in, in one of his books, when the person is talking about history being changed. And he says, quote, history isn't like that. History unravels gently like an old sweater. It has been patched and darned many times, re-knitted to suit different people, shoved in a box under the sink of censorship to be cut up for the dusters of propaganda. Yet, it always, eventually, manages to spring back into its old, familiar shape. History has a habit of changing the people who think they are changing it. History always has a few tricks up its frayed sleeve. It's been around a long time. And there you go. Have a good day, everybody. We'll see you next time on Long in the Boot.